Ladies and gentlemen, and there's enough done with gender altogether. Well, you're in Brighton now. This is the voice of your goddess, Juno Dawson. Please welcome to the stage your host for this evening, Damien Barr. <laughs> I felt like Dermot O'Leary coming on to the X Factor there, and I thought there might be a slightly awkward dance moment. <laughs> Welcome, Femini et homines. Hi, Gnaikes, Kai, Hoy, Andres. And thus you understand I did not enjoy the benefits of a classical education. <laughs> I did this earlier with Mary backstage, and she just said, can I just stop you? What language is this? <laughs> Anyway, welcome, Mary. Welcome, all of you. Um, and as Juno said, welcome, ladies, gentlemen, and those clever enough to have transcended gender. Welcome to the gorgeous Theatre Royal here on the very first night of Brighton Fringe, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, now, who is here for our salon with Armistead Maupin? Some hands going up there. Were, uh, was it you who wrote your phone number on a question card? Did he call? Are you surprised? <laughs> anyway, welcome all Vestal Salon virgins um, and the pre-loved. Uh, <laughs> I mean that, with love. Um, some of you I know have come from very far away. Some of you have come from Hove. Um, <laughs> some of you have come from Port Salad de Mer. Um, I myself have come all the way down Dyke Road. Real, real stretch. Welcome everyone to the People's Republic of Brighton and Hove, SPQBH. Uh, and according to Mary, Brighton plus Vegas equals Pompeii. There you go. <laughs> Sometime around 430 BC, Thucydides wrote that the greatest glory for women is to be least talked about among men, whether in praise or blame. So, let's begin our timely exploration of women in power by pissing off Thucydides. <laughs> Allow me to introduce you to three of the most powerful women in my life, women who have shaped me for better and for worse. This is my mum. Um, and that's me. Um, and you can tell from the curtains that it's the 1970s. She's 21 in this picture, and she has looked at me that way every single day since. Uh, just a few years after this was taken, she suffered a brain hemorrhage and almost died. It took her a very long time to learn to walk and talk again, but she taught me to read, so I returned the favour. Next up, it's Maggie. Ah, now nobody said that all women with power had to be good. <laughs> but Maggie undeniably shaped my life, and also that's me, that's me again. Um, but Maggie undeniably shaped my life just as much as my mum. She closed the steelworks where my, where my dad worked. She began a process of privatisation that looks positively socialist in the current climate. And she wasn't... And she... It's true. And she wasn't interested at all in feminism. Yet Maggie voted to decriminalise abortion. She proved a woman could run a country. And many, many women voted for her, including Jeanette Winterson, a fact she reveals in her brilliant memoir, Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal. Winterson also reveals that she wore a lot of fake tan in the 1980s, to which we must say, Jeanette, orange is not the only colour. <laughs> 
And finally, to another strong blonde, Dolly Parton. Oh, and look, there's me again. <laughs> now, my dad left my mum for a Dolly Parton impersonator, um, <laughs> which may explain a lot. Uh, so I grew up listening to Dolly and her coat of many colours has kept me warm ever since. And when I interviewed her uh, for Front Row about her love of stories, she told me she'd just finished rereading Catcher in the Rye and she said it's not so good second time around. <laughs> so my mum, Maggie and Dolly, take that Thucydides. Right now, we are in the middle of a classic revival. It's kind of a golden age. From Madeline Miller's Circe to Kamala Shamsi's Home Fire to Stephen Fry's Mythos, the brilliant Red Threads, which is coming out soon by Charlotte Higgins. And I do know that some people watch plebs on ITV too. <laughs> Nobody here, but I do know that there are people who watch it. <laughs> Only last year, though, Emily Wilson became the first woman to translate the Odyssey into English. And today, round of applause for that, yes, I think that's a very important fact. Um, and today, conversely, today Amazon launched a special category of fiction for single women. Because it's very hard for them to read. I don't know if you, if you know, single, single women find books, they're so heavy. And, um, and, you know, they don't talk back. And they haven't got far for, for anyway. Um, so right now, as you may have noticed um, at this point in our cultural lives, we're also in the middle of a particularly fierce battle in the war for equality. Me too, I believe her, and repeal the eighth have seen moments become movements. Millicent Fawcett fought for women to get the vote a hundred years ago, but only just got her statue in Parliament Square. After the Salon tonight, there will be a collection for RISE, a local charity supporting people affected by domestic abuse. RISE runs the only local helpline and offers emergency refuge, legal advice and counselling. So please give generously if you can. Tonight is about stepping back and taking the long view. It's about listening across the ages to Athena Penelope and Persephone, to the real and imagined women of the classic world, what can their stories tell us today? To help bring these voices to life, we have two of the most powerfully clever women in the modern world. The brilliant Professor Mary Beard, who is sitting over there. Will, <laughs> will join us after the interval to talk about civilizations, taming the trolls, and her groundbreaking manifesto, which I now think should be called a Wu Manifesto. Um, very cleverly. Um, <laughs> I just thought of that. Um, but I maybe shouldn't have shared that thought, but I, I felt it. I felt it. First up, though, before that, first up is one of Mary's former students. She is the host of Stand Up for the Classics on Radio 4. She is president of the Virgil Society. First president was T.S. Eliot. And she is the biggest Buffy fan you'll ever meet. She is the author of The Ancient Guide to Modern Life, The Amber Fury and The Children of Jocasta. Please welcome Natalie Haynes. Did Miri ever have to tell you off for being late for class? No, because I'm very punctual, as you know. Yes, you're very good. I'm okay, extremely we've got, punctual. We've got that out of the way. Um, you were going to read tonight from The Children of Jocasta. Which I was. I have here um, the, the proof, actually, which I loved. 
Um, very much. Um, but you decided, you, you emailed me this week and said, I've just finished a new book. I did do that. Which yeah. was a bit mad. Yeah, I'm slightly regretting it now for what it's worth. I was like, yeah, I already did Jocasta for your salon last year. Why don't I just read from the new book that's not out for like a year? That seems like a good marketing choice. I mean... <laughs> and if I'm going to try it out somewhere, I mean, it might as well be in front of like a thousand people because <laughs> why wouldn't that be weird? <laughs> and literally since we got into the building, everyone's gone, it's very brave, isn't it? Aren't you brave? A little bit like I've worn the worst things in the world and then left the house. That's basically how it's gone for me. Are you being brave, Natalie, aren't you? Yeah. Well, you are being brave. <laughs> I See, think she is. No, no it, is, it is brave. And I have to say, it's not actually that much of a risk. I, you sent the book to me earlier in the week. I've had time to read a quarter of it. Um, and it is fantastic. And we will talk about the reasons why it is um, in a minute. But tell us what's it called, what's it about? Um, it's called A Thousand Ships. And it is the story of the Trojan War, but told only from the perspectives of the women whose lives it affects or who cause it. Um, so uh, we have this notion, maybe our version of the Trojan War, if we think about it very much at all. Obviously, I think about it all the time, but that's because I have very few friends and no dinner money. But... <laughs> I understand that not everyone else does, but the things that maybe most people know about the Trojan War are the Trojan horse, mm. um, and maybe that first, the first line of the Iliad, sing muse of the wrath of Achilles. Um, and so I thought, well, it's, it's the muse then who's really on top of this story. Mm. Um, you know, we, all, we give all the credit to Homer, but should we be? Um, because somebody's, he's, he's asking for help from someone else. And, you know, we get this idea that it's Helen's fault that the war happens because she is Helen of Sparta. And then she goes, as you'll know if you, <laughs> if you watch Troy. Um, nothing wrong with watching Troy, much better absolutely, than Plaids. Absolutely nothing wrong with watching it at all. Um, <laughs> but if you did watch it, I'm very much enjoying that laugh. I don't know who you are. <laughs> But you're my current special favourite and I'm doing a small heart in the air for you. <laughs> because I was about halfway through the first episode and I was like, wow, ostrich size did not see an ostrich coming. Fair enough. And then no one mentions them. Yeah, yeah, no, fine. Yeah, just casually go across the screen. Why not? Why not? Anyway, um, I thought, <laughs> I, I'm a fan of the casual ostrich. Um, but, and the formal one. Um, <laughs> but... Um, we're kind of used to that notion that Helen, it's Helen's fault. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it isn't really Helen's fault. You know, Helen is a, a, a bargaining chip in a larger game. And um, at every stage, when you take the kind of causation of the war back, which is what I wanted to do with one timeline, it, it sort of plays out from the fall of the city is where the, the book begins. And then the, the consequences go forwards in time and the causation goes backwards in time, uh, which made my publishers have a slight breakdown, but they're fine now. And probably also you when you were... Oh, did, God, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, did, the whole time. <laughs> did you write it one way and then just turn it inside out, or did you no, write it? No, I wrote right? it in the order it comes in, which is right. the absolute best way to lose your mind. Okay, yeah. <laughs> just no a wonder small you were stressed when I was talking to you when you were editing it. I know. You were like, How are you? You were like, I'm fine. <laughs> Very yeah. strained. I'm fine. I so, know. Yeah. I went properly mental for a bit last year, yes. and and still for quite a lot of this year. And I thought I was coping really well. I can't remember when it was that I saw you. <laughs> But you were like, how are you coping now you've finished the first draft and you're waiting for feedback from your publishers? So I was like, I'm completely fine. It's been four weeks today and I'm absolutely fine. I ran 70 miles this week, so I think everything's absolutely fine. And you were like, that is... Yes, OK. Yeah. <laughs> Sit here, eat this. OK, yeah, no, that's fine. 
I think you actually ran your way through two pairs of shoes while you were, while you were writing and editing. Yeah, at least. And, and then the stress of it. So, um, so in, you, in your version of the story that many people know bits of, at yes. least, um, you, you're giving voices just... Just to, to the, the women. women, yeah. Because I figured that the other, the guys have had their say for a couple of thousand for, years. You know, I mean, even a, a little bit longer than that. The guys have had a good go. Yeah, they've had a good go, and I really like the Iliad. I like it more than most people do. I really like the Odyssey. Yeah. I like it a whole heap. I'm, I'm feeling really, that. I'm feeling yeah. that. I'm feeling. I'm feeling. And a lot I like Aeschylus's Oresteia, and I like Euripides' Trojan Women, and I stole the lot. I'm afraid I nicked the lot and and gave voices really just to the women because I thought. You know, if you're desperate to find out about more about the wrath of Achilles, you should go and read the Iliad. I can't, I can't do that. It's mm. A, it already exists. B, it's, it's quite good, the Iliad. I, yeah. I'm, I'm prepared to be less good than the Iliad. That's fine. I'm fine with that. Um, but you'll, you'll just go and read that. If you want to know what it was like for Briseis or Chryseis, the, the women who's uh, moving around is what provokes the wrath of Achilles at the start of the Iliad, then you can come to my book. If you want to know about Odysseus, read the Odyssey. It's absolutely amazing. If you want to know about Penelope, then I might do her, I think. Okay. So shall we hear from some of those women now? Shall we hear if some of them? If you'd like I to. think we would like. We would yeah. like. Yes. It's very, very much brave. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm entirely fueled by fizzy pop. I am sorry. I know it's a disgusting habit. <coughs> I'd like to apologise for it, but obviously I'm not going to stop it. Um, so um, <laughs> I thought the bit I would read for you would be um, the judgment of Paris is how it's normally described. But obviously, from my perspective, it's the chapter of Athene, Aphrodite uh, and Hera. Um, so I don't know how much you know, so I'll give you some backstory. If you feel like I'm telling you stuff that you all already know and that everyone already knows, feel free to make an exhausted sighing sound. Um, and I'll enjoy that. Or just that. feel very clever. Yeah, that's another option, of course. Yeah. Um, so uh, the reason that Paris gets Helen, uh, or kidnaps Helen, or, or, or runs off with her, depending on your perspective, and indeed the version of the myth that you're reading, is that he has promised her by Aphrodite. And he has promised her by Aphrodite in the famous, you've seen it in countless um, you know, paintings, uh, the famous judgment of Paris, uh, in which there's a golden apple on which is written Ter Calister, which means uh, for the most beautiful in Greek. Um, and the apple appears, you'll have to find out who's responsible for it, um, at the wedding of Thetis and Peleus. Uh, she's a sea nymph, he's a man. Uh, they are the parents or will be the parents of Achilles. Um, and the apple is thrown into the midst of the goddesses and it says for the most beautiful on it. And then Athene, Aphrodite and Hera all squabble over who it must be for because obviously none of them wants to consider that it might not be her. Um, it is a magnificent catfight um, at the risk of being not as feminist as I normally am. It is, though. And the thing about Greek goddesses, and indeed Greek gods in general, is they are incredibly petulant. Um, they are all basically, they're pure id. They have the exact emotional structure of a two-year-old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they're never going to get any older. So this is as good as it's ever going to be. Eternally two. They are eternally two. And so um, we've had the wedding scene in, in my version of this, this book. This is about, this is about just past a third of the way through. Um, and the golden apple has been thrown amongst them and they have demanded that Zeus decide who it goes to. Now Zeus, uh, king of the gods, is no fool. Uh, and he realises that whoever he gives it to, the other two will never forgive him. Um, and when you live forever, never is a long... <laughs> long time. Um, so he abnegates responsibility, good choice, um, and dumps them uh, at Mount Ida, which is just outside Troy. Uh, and he um, summons up uh, a young shepherd or cowherd, depending on the version of the myth, Paris, um, 
to do the judging for him, and thus the judgment of Paris occurs. So I thought I would read you that bit. Happy? Yes. Do you all feel confident that you know where this is going to be in the yes. story? Good. I don't like telling you more than you are, you know, it's hard working out when you come from the middle of the book. Anyway, not that you care. And you're right not to, Brighton. Absolutely. <laughs> Good choice. I'll tell you what, this feels brave. Um, <laughs> so we're at the top of Mount Ida. Um, Paris has, uh, has, these women are just about to appear in front of him. And here we are. The young man appeared in front of them as though they had dreamt him into existence. Perfumed black hair curled onto his forehead and his pointed cap sat slightly to one side, giving him a disreputable air. Who are you? demanded Hera. Paris, son of Priam, the man replied. His tone almost hid the confusion he felt in an environment both familiar and alien. Moments earlier, he had been tending his herd in the meadows which skirted the bottom of Mount Ida. Now, unaccountably, he was in a dark glade which he had never noticed before, and from the view, he was near the top of the mountain, except that the air was too warm for that to be true. And now three women, slightly too big and glowing faintly golden as though lit from within, <laughs> were staring at him. He knew they must be goddesses. You are to be our judge, said Aphrodite. She had no doubt that a mortal man would think her the most beautiful. And if he didn't, she would destroy him in a beat of his pitiful human heart. <laughs> judge? What am I to judge, madam, said Paris. This apple says it is for the most beautiful, Athene said, jabbing her finger at the apple in Hera's grasp. Give it to him, she said. It's what Zeus has decided. Hera sighed and beckoned the boy towards them. Here, she said, tossing the apple into his hands. You must decide to whom the apple rightfully belongs. Me, said Paris. For a moment, he had been wondering if his cattle were safe, unguarded on the slopes beneath them. But now, if he heard the roar of mountain lions or the howl of wolves, he wouldn't have moved a muscle. He turned the apple round, admiring its gleaming warmth. No wonder they were arguing over such a lovely, solid trinket. He saw the letters engraved on its flesh for the most beautiful. He felt a brief spasm of sadness that the writer had used the feminine ending, Callister. Had it read Callisto, he would certainly have kept it for himself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, said Aphrodite, who recognised desire when she saw it. It is very pretty, isn't it? As are you three ladies, Paris said with practised gallantry. We've heard it, said Athena. <laughs> Now choose. Paris looked from one face to the other in genuine perplexity. Aphrodite, of course, was utterly beautiful, as everyone had always told him. Her clothes seemed to strain over her breasts, clinging to her flesh in such a way that his eye was drawn, drawn down from her perfect face, no matter how much he wanted to gaze at it. He could imagine wrapping his hand in her honeyed hair and feeling her body pressed against his own, her mouth opening beneath him, and then he could imagine nothing else. Of course he would give the apple to her. She was astonishing. But then Hera cleared her throat and the connection was broken. Not broken exactly, but temporarily dispelled. Hera was tall, he noticed. Now she was standing between Aphrodite and Athene. Tall and elegant and somehow powerful, as though she might reach across to him and pick him up before dashing him against a rock. The daintiness of her wrists and her ankles made this seem an oddly alluring prospect. 
Perhaps he did not want to make her angry, he thought suddenly, and then stopped when he realised he hadn't thought anything of the kind. The words had simply popped into his mind as though he had heard them, yet no one had spoken. He stared at her mouth as though the trick might reveal itself, might reveal itself but it did not. And then on his left, there was the most surprising of the three. Troy had a statue of Athene in a temple on the citadel, larger than life-size, it had a forbidding aspect, the clean, crisp face of a woman who would strangle you with her bare hands so you didn't bleed on her dress. <laughs> but the goddess herself, now she was standing a few feet in front of him, was something else entirely. The forbidding expression was there all right, but the face which wore it looked so young that it shifted from something awe-inspiring into something charming. She was like the tomboy sister of a friend who you grew up treating as just another boy and then one day noticed she was turning into an intensely desirable woman who knew she was too good for you. <laughs> In that moment, Paris thought he would give a great deal to become good enough for her. Aphrodite stamped a small foot. She said you have to choose and you do, she said. The words seemed to slither across the ground between them and wrap themselves around him like snakes. Who does the apple belong to? I don't know, Paris said. You can criticise me for indecision, but the truth is you are the three most beautiful creatures I have ever seen. There is so much distance between you and any mortal woman that I can barely perceive it. It is like asking an ant in his underground nest to tell you which mountain is tallest. I cannot. You need more time, Athene said. She was determined that he shouldn't see how delighted she was that the apple wasn't already in her sister's hot little hands. Can we help you with your decision? There was a brief pause. I can help, said Aphrodite, and she wriggled until the brooches which held her dress in place at the shoulders worked themselves loose. The dress slid down to reveal her naked form and Paris looked like he might choke on his own tongue. <laughs> Oh, really, said Athene, we're doing this. She reached up. <laughs> and unfastened the brooches on her own dress, standing tall and willowy, nude but for her warrior helmet and her spear. Hera said nothing, but she too was suddenly naked. <laughs> oh, I snorted. I really did, that just happened. No, I liked it's it. very funny. Thank you. <laughs> I can't, Paris faltered. Can't talk, Aphrodite asked. Can't breathe, he replied. <laughs> he grappled with the ties on his Phrygian cap and worked them loose, casting it onto the dry ground. His hair was plastered to his head. Has this helped you make your decision? Hera asked him. He had not noticed before how deep and throaty her voice was. It honestly hasn't, he said. <laughs> Almost the reverse, actually. Zeus brought you here to decide, she said. You must choose. I need a moment, Paris replied. Is there a spring nearby I could do with some water? You can have something to drink when you've made your choice, Hera said, so kindly that the threat was almost entirely concealed. She took a step towards him, and it took all his power not to step back. Let me make things easier for you. If Paris had been able to focus on anything but her glowing face, a hand's width away from his own, he might have seen Athene and Aphrodite rolling their eyes in sisterly annoyance. The apple is for the goddess who is the most beautiful, as you see. Paris had almost forgotten he was holding the apple, though now its weight seemed to pulse with an inner heat. But beauty in a goddess is different from beauty in a mortal woman. It's not just about appearance, it's about ability. I am, as you can see, very beautiful. Paris nodded weakly. 
He thought for a moment of saying something about how surprising it was that Zeus had ever strayed from Hera, given her extraordinary radiance, let alone that he did it over and over again. But <laughs> something in her glittering eyes told him this might not be received as the compliment it was intended to be. <laughs> I am not only beautiful, she continued, I am also extremely powerful. I am the wife and sister of Zeus. I dwell by his side at the top of Mount Olympus. My favour builds kingdoms, my disfavour crushes them. You must choose me. Paris felt his hair shudder upright, as though he could feel her non-existent breath on the skin of his neck. Choose me, and I will give you dominion over any kingdom you desire, any of them. Do you understand? You can have Troy, if you want it, or Sparta, Mycenae, or Crete, anywhere you like. The city will bow before you and call you king. She stepped back, and Paris swallowed. Are we really going to... Athene glared at Hera. Fine. She stepped forward into the gap which Hera had left. Paris could feel sweat beading on his temples and in the small of his back. You don't need me to tell you that you should give the apple to me, she said. Her grey-green eyes were so different from Hera's, Paris thought. Hera's eyes were so dark, so brown, that a man could lose himself in them like a cave. But Athene gazed at him with a frank intelligence which made him feel suddenly her equal, hubristic as he knew the thought to be. Hera offered you a city of your own, she said. He did not speak, but she heard him just the same. A kingdom? She really does want that apple you're holding. You're probably wondering what I can offer, which would rival that, aren't you? Again, he did not reply, but she did not even pause. You're thinking that a kingdom might be more of a burden than a gift if an enemy decides to make it his own, she said. Paris had, in fact, been thinking about her naked breasts, which were <laughs> practically touching his skin because she was standing so close to him, but he forbore to correct her. And you're right, she said. A kingdom is nothing unless it's secure, and a king must be able to fight his enemies and win. That's what I can give you, Paris. I can give you wisdom, strategy, tactics. I can give you the power to defend what is yours from any man who would take it from you. What could matter more? Give the apple to me, and I will be your defender, your advisor, your warrior. Is that your owl? He asked. <laughs> as the tawny bird flapped across the clearing and settled on a rotten tree trunk to his right. You cannot have my owl, she said. <laughs> and thought for a moment. I will get you another owl if you want one. <laughs> Thank you, he replied. It's a tempting offer. Athene nodded and stepped back beside Hera. The owl flew over to her and perched on her outstretched arm. Athene stroked the feathers on the back of its head and it pecked gently at her hand. Even though he was watching her, could not help but stare at her, Paris did not see Aphrodite move. She was suddenly behind him, in front of him, all around him. Her hand stroked his arm, a glancing touch, and he felt like his legs might give way beneath him. He had never wanted something so much in his life as to simply fall to his knees before her and worship her. Her hair, like sun on sand, was wrapped around him and he tasted salt on his lips. You know the apple is mine, she said. Give it to me and I will give you the most beautiful woman in the world. You, he asked, his voice cracking on the word. Not me, she replied. I would destroy you, Paris. You are mortal. Paris wondered if destruction would be such a terrible way to die. <laughs> I will give you the closest thing to me. Her name is Helen of Sparta. He had a sudden image of a woman of extravagant beauty, flaming yellow hair, white skin, a swan-like neck, and then it was gone. 
Aphrodite shimmered away like spume on the surface of the sea, and Paris looked down at the solid golden apple, the stalk at its head and the leafy nub at its base. He looked back up at the three goddesses who stood before him, and he knew it had only one rightful owner. As the goddesses returned to Mount Olympus, Athene swore she would never speak to either of them again, especially not Aphrodite, who radiated smugness as she cradled the apple in her spiteful little hand. <laughs> you didn't tell him Helen already has a husband, Hera murmured. She preferred to take her revenge at a leisurely pace, so refusing to speak to her tormentor would serve little purpose. It didn't seem important, Aphrodite replied. Besides, how much can it matter? Paris already has a wife. <laughs> You cannot have my owl. It is genuinely my favourite line in the entire book, I think. Because even like... as I wrote it, I was like, you cannot have my owl! <laughs> There's no way I was ever going to read it any other way. <laughs> it's utterly brilliant. And Thank you. The, the, the view that you have into the, their, their personalities is, is incredible, and it's unlike anything that, you know, that I've ever heard before. Did they come to you easily, the distinct personalities? Yeah, they kind of did, really. Aphrodite owes, my version of Aphrodite owes a little bit of something to um, the version that you get in Euripides Hippolytus, which isn't part of the Trojan um, story, but she is such a bitch in that. My God! And she just destroys, she destroys the lives of Hippolytus, but... Um, but of Phaedra, and Phaedra has been, you, if you, you're more likely to see the Racine version, I think, Fed, than um, the Euripides version. It gets performed more often. Um, but, you know, Phaedra is a, is a good, um, devout woman. You know, she, she pays obeisance to Aphrodite, and she just destroys her as collateral damage. She never hesitates to do it. And the, the goddesses in, in Euripides are so uh, petulant and so horrible that it was, yeah, it was, um, I've just stolen them from him. Yeah. But if you're going to steal from anyone, Euripides is a great choice. Yeah. And they sounded like they were actually great fun to write. They were the most fun to write, because I should tell you that's quite an unrepresentative sample of this book, which is largely really sad. Um, the letters from Yeah, I mean, Penelope. I did cry for about the first, with the first quarter that I read. It's pretty dark. I know it is, yeah. No, there's... and it gets worse, I'm afraid, because it's a war, you know, and there's bad things do happen. So, yeah, a few months, six, seven months into endless rapes and murders. <laughs> so the, the bits that were fun to write, the comedy bits were... But I hope the, the tone shifts without lurching yes. too much. But, yeah, it was a, it's a bit of a, a high-wire act. So as with The Children of Jocasta, you've chosen um, a, bit, a, a bit of time that we understand or a story that we know quite a lot about. So yeah. in, in a weird way, it makes it quite hard to surprise yes. the reader. I mean, yeah. we, we know what's coming. And yet, when I was reading the bit about the Trojan horse, I thought, well, what does happen to the Trojan horse? <laughs> do, do they burn it down or... You know, um, or do these soldiers all come marching out? I mean, it made me, it made me uncertain. Yeah, yeah. It made, made me unsure. Well, often there are different versions of a myth. The version of the Trojan horse that I've taken is from um, Aeneid Two, um, which uh, is the bit where you get Laocoon, the priest, who mm. says, you know, we definitely shouldn't take the horse inside. And it's such a famous um, painting and sculpture source over and over again. You see, it. Um, famously, he lobs, uh, he does the whole, I'm afraid of the Greeks, even when they're bearing gifts speech, and he lobs his spear at it, um, and it vibrates out the flank of the horse. 
and then sea snakes, sea snakes, um, appear and, and, and drown his children. And so the Trojans go, the Trojans aren't as gullible as you think, because everybody always goes, oh, those idiot Trojans, they fight an army for 10 years, and then the army disappears, and they leave a big army-sized horse outside. <laughs> and the Trojans are like, come on in, what could possibly go wrong? But actually what happens, of course, is they get played by a man named Sinon, um, who does this whole, they find, find him and he's a human sacrifice. The Greeks were gonna kill him, but if they could just take the horse into the city, then the Greeks will be undone. It's, it's a proper kind of John le Carre scene. Um, and then Leia Cohen does the, he, he violates the horse and then his children immediately are killed. And so the, the Trojans go, oh, you know, uh-oh. We, we should definitely do the opposite of what Leia Cohen said. So they just get played on all sides by the gods, by the sea snakes, who take a very unfair turn, I think. And so, yeah, they're less gullible than they seem. Um, you mentioned John le Carre then. I was going to ask you, you know, why are we having this big Greek revival now? Why are we, there's so many books and so many stories. But yeah. in actual fact, they just haven't gone away. They've just been repackaged. I know people um, keep asking me, and I kind of, I don't, I'm the worst person to ask. It's like, well, they've been in my life since I was, you know, 12 because I took Latin, I took Latin, Greek and ancient history A-levels. <laughs> so, so lame. Fun times. <laughs> I had the nicest time. I don't know what you want me to say. Like, extra Greek. <laughs> Hooray. Um, but yeah, no, they've, they've been part of my life forever. So or, or for a considerable chunk of it anyway. Um, so it seems very strange to me that other people don't feel the same way, but you're yeah. right. I think lots of people have come to it. But people like Madeline Miller. Yeah. Madeline was teaching classics, you know, for, for years before she wrote Song of Achilles. Um, and it took her years and years to write because she was, you know, full-time teaching as well. So I think there are loads of... And, you know, Charlotte Higgins, who's read Thread, you know, she's a classicist. She's written two, three, three classics books already. So, mm. you know, she kind of has a bit of time out to write an authoritative history of the BBC and then she comes back to classics because she's an expert. She yeah. should be writing about it. We're lucky to have her. Yeah. Um, what did you think of the Achilles book? I loved it. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, I loved it. It's incredibly sexy. It's so hot. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I mean, I, know I think if the classics of... were all that hot, I would have been able to with... stick with and it. They are that hot. It's just they're not always told that way. I think mm. that's the thing. And I know lots of... Um, kind of grumpy male critics were like, well, this is an absolute outrage, those men kissing men. You go, oh. <laughs> I'm afraid there might be some men kissing men in ancient Greece. I think you knew that in your hearts, didn't you? You did. You did know the boys kiss boys. That did happen. Yeah. They'll get over it eventually. Yeah, and then read it again quietly on yeah. their own. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Don't pretend we didn't. Um, let's uh, let's talk a wee a wee bit about about Jocasta, your, the reimagining of the Oedipus story. And for yes. those of you who who don't know, Oedipus uh, marries his uh, mother. Um, spoiler. Uh, spoiler. <laughs> You've had three thousand years to work that out. Um, but um, you know, here again, you give voices to the voices to the voiceless. And in fact, yes. there's, a, there's a great bit um, in in the in the middle of the book um, where where Izzy. Um, as many says, she says, so I should compose my own history or it will be lost forever. And Sophon says, yes, he agreed, you should. And she says, it's better to start at the beginning or to start now and work backwards. Yes. Um, and it's a, it's a brilliant moment where she's confronted with the fact that she's about to be completely erased. Yeah, and she from kind history. of is. And the, yeah, in, in the Sophocles version of Antigone's story, which is the, by far the best known version now, Ismene has 60 lines. 60, 60 lines. 60 in a play which is well, 1,400 lines long. Um, Jocasta only has 120 lines in Oedipus the King. Um, so they are really marginal roles. And of course you could argue that they're not 
they're not the leads in those plays. But Antigone, you would assume, is the lead in Antigone. She isn't. She has about two-thirds the number of lines of Creon. Um, and it's not a gendered issue, by the way. The lead in Agamemnon isn't Agamemnon, it's Clytemnestra. So it doesn't always go that way. It's just the case that uh, Sophocles wrote 150 plays. We've got seven. And the three Theban plays that we have are from three different trilogies. So who knows? He probably wrote a Jocasta. It would be weird not to have done. It's a yeah. great story. If you're going to look at the Oedipus myth, the woman who gives birth to a child who's... The, the, whose child is taken away because he will be her downfall and as far as she knows is killed and then who comes back into her life in a really unexpected way well you know that's that's a good story it seems unlikely you'd have missed it out that was such a kind of jeremy carl moment comes back into her life in an unexpected way <laughs> let's have a dna test uh, now already very quickly has become time for questions so i'm going to get the the house lights up we have question cards. Some of you filled them out um, for Natalie beforehand. You can fill them out for Mary. If you want to be in with the chance of winning a bundle of signed books, you can just sign up for our mailing list um, and we'll enter you into a draw. Um, so I'm going to start with these cards. I mean, not an untold controversial question. Uh, Natalie, do you think there is still a need for a woman's prize for fiction? Yes, I do. Easy, right? <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Um, the vast majority of... Find um, a man, I think. <laughs> I, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. Like, a dot man. Um, yes, I mean, the, particularly, I think, the Women's Prize for Fiction, formerly the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, formerly the Orange Prize for Fiction, is a really, really brilliant institution. It was set up by a very brilliant woman, Kate yes, Moss. Yes, yes. Um, and basically, as a general rule of life, if Kate Moss is doing a thing, you're on the same side as her, and if you're not, you're probably wrong. Um, she's Kate only, Moss with an E. Kate Moss with an E, yeah. yeah. She's, she's like, she's four feet tall, tops, but she's just amazing. Um, and she's right about virtually everything. And women are still not reviewed as much as men in, you know, their um, books which are seen as being uh, marketed at women are still seen more lightly. We discovered only this week that books which are marketed at women tend to be priced more cheaply than books which are marketed at men. Because obviously, you know, women's work is so trivial. So, you know, I wish that we didn't need it, but I'm afraid we do. And until we don't, um, I'm going to support the prize. Good, good. Um, is there a female character or real historical figure uh, that you wouldn't dare write about? Oh, that is a good question. I've done some female historical figures on the radio, Sappho, um, Aspasia, Agrippina, mother of Nero, who I wouldn't, haven't written In fiction about. Yeah. yeah, because they are, yeah, it just seems too much, uh, at least for me at the moment. Why do you mean too much and too much how? Uh, well, in a way, I mean, Sappho, we know virtually nothing, nothing. about. There's, There's just fragments. There's, you know, we found one extra poem of hers, um, three, four years ago. I'm terrible at modern time. I'm only good at ancient time. Um, <laughs> in, in the modern world, I think everything happened two weeks or five years ago with absolutely no exception. Um, but I'm really good on, you know, the date that the, you know, Spartan land force finally lost to the Thebans at Leuctra. Uh, that I'm fine, but otherwise nothing. Um, so I guess um, there's just not enough. There's just not enough on Sappho. And it right. was, writing 15 minutes of stand-up on her for the third series of stand-up for the classics was an enormous burden, if I'm absolutely honest. Right. Oh, God, it's so difficult. Doing the woman programme for that is always the hardest one because there's no evidence. Um, and in the case of Sappho, it's largely because I think it was destroyed by the early Christian church because it was so shocking that it was a woman talking about liking women. No, I know. I don't know what to say myself. Um, <laughs> but uh, it turns out girls like girls. <laughs> um, You're in Brighton. It's fine. Good gasp. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm not sure if there's anybody I absolutely wouldn't do. Um, 
I hope not. Okay. I hope not. Yeah, I hope I'll find somebody that I'll like and do her next. You have only just finished this book. I, I know, do, I might need I'm not rest. actually pushing you to, yeah. to do another book or run another 70 miles a week. Questions <laughs> uh, from the audience. We've got some roving mics. Oh, here. Hello. Hello. Hello, Jojo Moyes. <laughs> um, I was wondering, do you feel that any of the women that you write about from ancient times or, or goddesses have lessons that we can take as women today? Yeah, I hope they all do, in a way. I mean, I hope they all do, even if the lesson is, don't do that. <laughs> Which, in the case of those goddesses, I would imagine it probably is. I mean, don't get me wrong, by the time I finished writing that chapter, I really wanted a golden apple. That's all I can think about is how much I want an apple and an owl. Um, but, an yeah, owl carrying an apple. Is the least Ideal. you could do. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'm astonished that's not the prize for giving your address to the mailing list, to be honest, but it isn't, so <laughs> there it is. But yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's really difficult because that quote from Thucydides is mm. from Pericles' funeral speech, which happens at the end of the first year of the Peloponnesian War. Um, and a huge number of people have died, both in the war and of plague. Um, and Pericles will go on to die of plague, spoiler. Uh, but to be fair, it is history. Um, and what I love about it is that it's so magnificently hypocritical mm. because he properly says, you know, that you, sh you shouldn't, you, these women shouldn't be spoken of in any way, in a good way or a bad way. And yet Pericles was common law married to the most notorious woman in ancient Athens, Aspasia. Um, and she was, we get references to her in Aristophanes' plays. She gets um, mentioned in uh, Plato. I think she's the only, I think that's true, that she's the only real woman, as opposed to a, a fictional woman, Diotima, for example, in the whole of Plato's work. So absolutely Pericles didn't practice what he preached. He said, oh, women, you should all be very obscure and unknown, and then immediately shacked up <laughs> the most celebrated, notorious woman. So I like to think we should take our cue from how actual women were rather than how men decided they should be in their speeches, um, because they're so rarely right, in my experience. Which seems a great place to leave our podcast. Please join me for thanking Nat Mahid for being so brave.